Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Well, greetings this day in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our King. It's so good to see everybody here today. I'm so thankful to see you all. Um, you don't see our uh, Haitian brothers, Luke Ney and Eric, with us today. They are, what's funny about it is they're not like members of our church. They're people we met we can't even hardly talk to, right? And they've been here three weeks in a row. Uh, but they were letting Marion know that they wouldn't be here because they're doing something, but they may show up a little bit later, okay? So, you know, you, it's pretty funny when people who aren't even members want to let you know why there may not be their church, you know? <laughs> So, uh, but it's so good to see everybody here today. So glad uh, that we have another opportunity to come into the presence of the Lord and uh, lift up his name together, worship the Lord, hear his word. Amen. Uh, our call to worship today comes from Psalm 2. We've, we've used it actually several times uh, in, in worship. It's a very pivotal and uh, powerful psalm. And we're out of teaching through the Psalms, but we will continue to use the Psalms as our call to worship. Psalm 2 says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder. Let's cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall do what he shall He's going to laugh. You know, the world thinks they can just push God off. They think that they can just say he doesn't matter. They can say that I think we can just break the bands of God. Do you think that they can do that? No, they can't do that. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with the rod of iron, and thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You know, as I read this call to worship, um, I saw something in the news and I laughed at it. Maybe you aren't laughing at it today, but maybe you can join me in laughing at it because it's funny. And they said, we're going to show you the billionaires in America in every state and who is really running everything. And I went, ha, 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 They think they are running it. They think that they are. Remember when the man says to Jesus, he's very perplexed at this whole pilot is. And he's like, don't you understand? I've got the power to just let you go and let you live. And Jesus looks at him. What's he say? You don't have that kind of power. I, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. Folks, we are living in the reign of Christ. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto him. 
He's not afraid of them. He's not wringing his hands. He's not scared of what they might do. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And there will be a day when every knee will bow, every tongue confess to this fact. They may not know it. They'll come publishing their reports. This is the most powerful person in the world. This is the most influential people in the world. These are the people that run it all. And I say, yeah, you don't know who, they, who, who those real people are. God is at work doing what God does. And man is really an object of God's laughter more than we know it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a glimpse into the reality that's really, really before us. I remember in your word, I remember a servant of the prophet, very, very concerned as an army surrounded him. The, the, the Assyrians were so angry because every time they tried to do something to Israel, the prophet would tell them before. He, it was like they had a spy, but the spy was you, Lord. You were telling the prophet what was going on. So they decided they were going to kill this prophet and they surrounded him with an army. The servant cried out, oh, look at that. Oh, they're going to get us. And the prophet asked God, God, would you open this man's eyes so he can see what's really going on? And when the servant looked over and he saw your angels, when he saw your powerful host encamping around the prophet, he saw what was really going on. Lord, I pray today that you would open our eyes, that we would trust that you know exactly what's going on, that you are Lord of all and that we are your servants. Lord, we are as safe as that prophet was in his house, though an army would encamp against us. Lord, you are greater than they. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said. standing as I read uh, just a few verses. I'm going to read eight verses. And I really believed when I started putting this together that I would cover all eight verses today, but we will not. So do not get worried as you start looking at your clock and you're wondering, we're only in verse two. I can't believe it. And we, and it's taking us this long. So don't worry. We're going to have a great time. I'm going to read, uh, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. You just heard it, but it won't hurt to hear it again. The former treaty have I made unto thee, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the father, which saith he, ye have heard of me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy ghost. Not many days hence. And when they were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou restore again the kingdom of Israel. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know. The times are the season which the Father hath put in his own power. But you shall receive power. Everybody say power. After the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea 
and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we need your word to build our lives upon the foundation stones of it, Lord, are uh, not something that can be replaced, replicated, or fabricated, but you have established them and we can build no foundation other than that which you have already laid. In Christ's name we pray, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. As we as a church launch into our journey through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to need to shift gears quite a bit. We have been in the book of Psalms, a book of poetry and praise, singing to the Lord, pouring out our hearts and lifting up his mighty name for four and a half years. That's a long time. But that's a particular kind of literature. It's a particular kind of God's word and we need to understand that what we are moving to now is a completely different kind. Right now we are embarking into history. Testimony. Everybody say testimony. God's judgments. His acts and some of his acts even giving us a glimpse into the healthy fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and it is the beginning of all wisdom. Some of you might remember in Psalm number 19, we were extolling the virtue of the word of God. You guys know that Psalm, right? We know it. It talks about nature, talks about heavens declaring the glory of God and all that. And in the middle of it, it changes and says the law of the Lord is perfect. Remember that? It, it, it is complete. It has everything we need. And in doing so, it praises the aspects of God's word that he has given us so that we might know him in his mind toward us better. I'm going to try to explain this better. I didn't really write this down, so I'm just going to explain it to you. You know, if I got a letter from you and that letter said, you know, hey, uh, I need you to get the thing I left over at your house and I need you to, um, you know, come at five o'clock to this meeting that we're going to have. You sent me a letter, right? And I got this letter. So the letter with specific instructions are one thing, okay? They can be misunderstood if you don't know the context behind them, just like God's law. God will give us laws. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. So we get rules, right? The, the Ohio Revised Code or the laws of the federal government says you, you should do this or you have this right and it lists it out. That is, that is law. Everybody say law. These are statutes, okay? They're rules. But all of God's word is not a rule and sometimes we need uh, a life example to understand the rule, okay? So I'll give you an example. Uh, how about one straight from the Bible? Would that be helpful? <laughs> So Jesus appears on the scene, and we'll get into this, but I'm, I want you to understand the difference between law and testimony. The difference between uh, rules and history. History and what God does makes it clearer to us what God really meant, okay? So God told them, they said, you shall do no work. Uh, you should do all of your work six days a week, but on the seventh, you're not going to do any of that work, right? 
Well, man did not really completely understand what that meant. And over time, man got a little bit crazy with this. And because he didn't really understand it, he never saw anyone live it out. Uh, that, you know, it's not like someone appeared from heaven and lived out what he was really meaning. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, these guys are doing the craziest things in the world on the Sabbath day. If a man was a tailor and he made clothing, he would not even carry a, uh, a, a needle and thread, you know, in his pocket because he was carrying his work with him. That's how serious they were about it. And this is the way we are. We're legalists. A man, uh, he's, he's a physician and he helps people. They get a cut on their arm and he fixes them up and they go, well, he can't do that on the Sabbath day, right? Because what? That's his work. And so people would need a doctor and the doctor wouldn't even help them because they're like, well, I'm not allowed to do my work. I know my work is being a doctor. Now, is this what God meant by don't work on the Sabbath? Everybody say, no, this is not what God meant. There, there would be a guy whose donkey fell in a, a hole and his foot's all twisted and he's dying. They're like, well, you know, it's a Sabbath day. You know, we, we, it's too much work. We, we don't want to offend God. Did God ever mean that? No. And so Jesus said, okay, you guys got it all wrong. And he lived among us. And so you know what he does on every Sabbath day that almost recorded where Jesus, on, you know what he does? He heals somebody on the Sabbath day. He even spits on the ground and, and makes mortar, right, James? You know how you put mortar in between? His do, you know, do you know why that he did that, James? He did that because they were not allowed to spit on the ground on the Sabbath day, lest someone would mix up the mud and they would say, look, he's mixing mud. He's, he's going to do masonry work today. He's mixing mud. That's, a, that's why. You were not allowed to go to the bathroom on the ground. You had to do it on a wall or on a tree because if you did it, you might mix it up and make concrete out of it. I'm serious. That's how crazy they were. And so, so at the time, Jesus had to go, you guys have got this all wrong. You're totally messed up. The Sabbath was not made, right? You, you, man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was for, made for man. And so, yeah, we can heal. You know, he tells a guy, a guy who's lame his whole life, rise up, pick up your bed and walk. And they're like, oh, he told him to carry his bed. I mean, they missed the fact that he gave a man legs. And so Jesus lives out. And so we watch Jesus living it out. And we'll get to this. So, so do you understand the difference between rules and how they're lived out? Jesus said, or the law says, do not bear false witness. And so they're like, well, that means we're not allowed to lie. Well, there comes a time in the life before Moses is born. And Pharaoh says, kill every baby, every male baby that's born, kill them. And there are these two midwives, these two women. And you know what they say? We're not going to do that. And not only are we not going to do it, when Pharaoh asks us about it, we're going to say, you know, hey, these Hebrew women, they have a baby so fast, they give birth and we don't even, we're, we're not, they delivered the baby before we even got there. So do they kill the babies? They lie. You go, they did wrong. You know what God's word says? These women were good women. What these women did was right and righteous and beautiful. And you go, yeah, but they lied. God never, God wasn't talking about that. God doesn't say when the Nazis show up at your house and they ask if you're hiding Jews in your attic, you go, well, I got to tell the truth. Yep, they're up there. No, 
That is not what it was meant to be. So when it's lived out, we get to understand it better than when we just hear the rules. Does that make sense? So we're going to move into this area of testimony. We're going to move into this era, this, this, this living it out. We're going to get to see it. Okay, so let me try to get back in here. So when I talked about this, God gave us more than a set of rules. He gave us a lot more to help us understand. We can miss the point of the rules and the meaning of them. So God has given us stories. And in the stories, he makes judgments. He establishes statutes. He applies to a particular situation. And he teaches us what it really means to follow him. Okay. So in Psalm, one, in Psalm 19, and I always want to say 119, but Psalm 19. I don't want you to miss these words, okay? So he, he, he talks about the law as a whole, and then he breaks it down into testimony, statutes, commandments, okay? And even the fear of God. So he breaks it down in all these ways. Psalm, Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Everybody say the law. So in that, he's saying the whole of it, all of God's word, all of it, okay? It's perfect. That means it has everything. It's not just a set of rules. It's got stories, too. And, it, and we even see God's judgment. I mean, do you remember what Solomon did, the wisest man in the world? These people are fighting over a baby because, you know, no one can prove whose it is. They don't have DNA tests. And so Solomon says, okay, cut it in half and give half to one woman and half to the other. You go, well, that'd be wrong. Uh, that was wise. And you know what? Also, hey, you can have the whole baby. What? Well, that's obviously the mother, Right. You go, well, that wasn't right what he did. Yeah, it was beautiful what he did. It was God's wisdom. But does, did it make sense? You go, well, it, it wasn't right for him to tell him to cut the baby in half. He knew the baby was never going to be cut in half. There's more to it than rules and laws. It's about how we live it out. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, the testimony. Everybody say testimony. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Can you see all these, these things? There's judgments, there's statutes, there's testimony, there's, th there's th stuff going on. And in that, we get a multidimensional view of God. We get to see God. He comes alive. You know, uh, when I did this in the original, I had a little uh, thing on the wall and I showed uh, what a one dimensional picture looks like. And then I added lines and now it's two dimensional and the, the next thing it's three. Do you see how when you add dimensions, something becomes more real, right? And God becomes more real to us when we get the rules, but then we get the stories and then we get the judgments where God says these were good women instead of smiting them, right? And we go, okay, if God thought that was good, maybe I misunderstood the law. And so God's word and God himself becomes multi-dimensional, right? The fear of the Lord is clean. The judgments of the Lord are true. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, okay? So let me add this. When Jesus Christ came, the word of God was fully made flesh in the perfect man. And we understood so much more about God's word. Now, some people say the Old Testament, it's dumb. We shouldn't read it. Uh, we should just read the new. No, the New Testament helps us to see what the Old Testament was actually saying. Jesus didn't come on the scene and go, all right, you guys have been living life and I gave you this book and it's full of this old stuff and I want you to forget it. It's not important. I'm going to give you new stuff. That's not what he says. He said, I didn't come to do away with this. I came to what? Fulfill it. 
I came to fulfill it. I come to help you understand it. And that's what I've come for. He did not come to do away with it. In fact, he said, heaven and earth's going to pass away, but not even one word of my law is going to pass away. So when God was made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, we understood so much more about God. It was another dimension for those who saw him, <clears throat> who saw him personally, right? And for all that was written about his life in the gospel. So, so yeah, those people living, they saw it, they understood it. But we, as we read the story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we hear what Jesus did, now we know God better. Why? Because God's word as it says in John, and the word was made flesh and it did what? It dwelt among us and we beheld. Uh, now we were like, oh, that's what he meant in his word. The perfect man perfectly displayed the perfect law. But this was not the end of God's revelation of himself. And this is the part I think that we need to be jumping on and understanding and getting. I kind of like the perfect law Showing us the perfect God perfectly. I kind of like that, don't you, Marian? But you know what? God has chosen to do something that is really kind of like, what? Because God did not, he's not done working. In fact, Jesus said something I almost feel like I shouldn't say. But since Jesus said it, I think it's okay, right? He said, you know what? I did great things, but you're going to do greater things than I did. Now, does anyone even imagine that we can do greater things than Jesus did when he was on this earth? Like, I'm like, yeah, probably not. But yeah, right? If he said we are, then what are we going to do, Michael? Somehow we are, right? But, but here's the deal. The perfect law became perfectly clear to us through the perfect man. But you ready what God's going to do? Joy, this is the exciting part. God's going to take the perfect law and he's going to show it perfectly, not through a perfect man, but through what? Through imperfect people. This is, if you think walking on a high wire is hard, this is walking on a high wire in a hurricane. This is why the Bible says, I believe the Bible says in heaven, our mouths are going to drop like this and we're going to go, how did you do that? This is amazing. So God is going to take imperfect people and that was these guys, these apostles, right? And you and me. In the apostles upon which the church of Jesus Christ is built, the word became flesh in these imperfect men who were often used perfectly as they wrote God's words in letters and histories as they walked in the spirit. You know, I talk about this, but it's an amazing thing because I believe it still happens today. When the apostle Paul is in, you know, he, 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 he was a working man. He wasn't, he wasn't a man of leisure. He wasn't a full-time pastor being paid by the church. He was a working man and uh, his fingernails were busted from hammer work and from building tents and doing this. And he was kind of a rough guy. People sort of made fun of him. He said, yeah, I'm not like these other great people. Well, we know what he was, right? He was an amazing man of God. But here he was and he's in a prison, Billy. He's locked up. He's accused of being a criminal. And all he's doing is writing a letter. And do you know what he didn't know? He did not know that the letter he wrote to the Philippians to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to the Corinthians. He did not know it would be perfect. I mean, I'm writing a book. I can tell you, it's fun to write a book. And I want to make sure Sister Joy and my wife and my kids and anyone else wants to read it to find it. But somehow from prison, 
without a coat, without the food that he wished that he had not feeling so good, on his way to have his head cut off, he perfectly wrote the word of God. And I believe God is at work and he works in us sometimes still perfectly. We don't know when he does it, but he does it. You know, I believe that in my life, there have been sometimes God has worked through me perfectly. Sometimes I'll come home and I remember actually years ago, I remember this, I can never get this out of my mind. I remember being over at, uh, at Gary and Lou's house. And I remember, I remember it being dark in my car. I don't know if this, said, if this happened a lot of times, but Tony, I'd be driving home and, my, and, and I'd call my wife. I, you know, I don't know if she's asleep yet. I'm calling her. She goes, well, I said, oh, honey. I said, I felt like God picked me up like a trumpet. And he played me. And it was so wonderful. So wonderful to be down there on Campbell Avenue in Gary's house and Lou at that table opening up the word of God and talking the word of God. And I was just like, oh, honey. And I told her, I said, I said, I was made for this. This is who I am. It's what I love. I love it more than I love it. Anything in this life that I've experienced, I love it. I'm telling you guys, God can use you perfectly. There might be times, Michael, when you're on this keyboard, you're learning to play and God will use you perfectly. I don't know when he does it or how he does it, but he does do it. If you remember what Jesus said to Peter after asking him who men said that he was, And then he asked, Peter, who do you think I am? Do you guys remember this? Peter's answer was this. Thou, this is Matthew chapter 16. He says, thou art the Christ. You are Lord. Peter was not confused. <laughs> he wasn't the Christ, right? Like John wasn't the Christ. There, there was only one of those. It's Jesus, right? I'll read it for you. Matthew 16, starting in verse 15. He said, but who do you say that I am? He's asking actually all the disciples. Simon Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Tony, can you imagine that God can use you like that? I can't. I don't mean you. I can't understand. You see, the first stone, the first foundation stone in fact, the cornerstone is that Jesus is the Christ. You're not the Christ. <laughs> I'm not Christ. Jesus, there's only one of those. The son of the living God. Paul reinforced this in his epistle to the Ephesians, which is a real total explanation of the church in great detail through Revelation In fact, that's what all the whole book of Ephesians is about. What is this church? What, what is the church? Who are you? Ephesians 2 says, 
Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and the household of God. And you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God is telling us, and he goes over this in Ephesians even more, and we don't have time to get into all that. I can just, I want to go over the whole Bible. But the point is, is that we are God's building. God dwells in us. Thank you, brother. You go, I don't understand. That's how we are used perfectly of God because we're a building and we're built on the stones that built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. We're built and you know what? God comes and lives in us, not in us. And we think, oh, Jesus lives down in my heart. He lives in the church. The church is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. You have to understand this analogy is not mine. It's from the scripture. We will be looking at these foundation stones, as many of them as we can find in the book of Acts. And we're going to seek to build our church on those stones. How many like the sound of that? Here in Acts, we will see the great deal of testimony, eyewitness accounts of how God worked in the time of the early church. These words are inspired. So what we are seeing, we know for sure was God at work. Many times people will say God did this or God said that. And we go, oh, I don't really know about all that. But when it says in here, let me just tell you, if it says it was, Marianne, it is. These words are unique. No other place in the New Testament is like this. Other sources are letters. They're written to existing Christians, explaining to them some rules and some statutes and some things they need to follow, some procedural uh, guidelines. But this is not what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts is not a rule book. The book of Acts is testimony of God at work among his people and how we as his people should work and live. As we see this unfold, we too can follow them as they followed Christ. They had not attained perfection themselves, as Paul had said, but they were following after. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. In the case of the book of Acts, we will also be following not just Paul. We're going to be following Luke, the physician, because he's the writer of the book of Acts. Luke is also called Luke, the evangelist, a follower of Christ. We know that he was a writer, perhaps even a historian. He authored the book of Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Most agree. And I say most, and I, I say most because the book of Acts doesn't start off and say, I'm Luke the physician and I wrote this book, or his name is not on it in that way at all. So I say, we're mostly sure. I'll fully explain in later lessons why I say most. And his name is not given, as I said at the beginning of the books, like Paul will say, Paul, an apostle, not of men. Right. Paul and Timothy to the people here. And, and so their name is put on the front of it. Luke's name is not put on it. But it is not a light thing to say something. So I don't just get up and say, yeah, Luke wrote it. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't say he wrote it. So I'm not saying it. Does it look very clear? Can I make a great case for it? Did the church believe it is as accepted? Yeah, all that's true. But does the Bible itself say Luke wrote this? It does not. So can I just say Luke wrote it or can I say we're pretty sure he wrote it? You see what I mean? 
I don't get up and just talk here. What God's word says, I will tell you it says. And if, if, I don't, if, if it doesn't say it, I will not tell you that it says it. So for the sake, though, of not having to repeat this many times over the next weeks and months, I'm not going to stop and go, we're pretty sure. I will be referring to Luke as the author of the book based on this. But you got it here? And anyone else that comes to visit, you can let them know. Pastor Mark is not trying to assert what the Bible doesn't say. He explained it. You just weren't there. Okay? All right. So it may not occur to us at first, but Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. I asked my kids, I said, who wrote more of the New Testament than anybody? You know what the first thing they said was? Paul. Next thing he said, no, it's John. And I go, two strikes, you're out. It's Luke. And they're like, that can't be. That cannot be. And I'm like, it is. Do you know Luke wrote 28% of the New Testament? The Apostle Paul wrote 13 books that his names are on. A 14th book his name is not on, the book of Hebrews, but most people believe it. And if most people, if you accept that, he wrote 14 books and he rivals. He's right there at 28%, but Luke still is edging out the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? What's amazing and even more amazing about it is that Luke was not even a Hebrew. And in fact, he wasn't even, he didn't even, and not, well, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Luke was, it has been concluded by many, a Gentile convert to Christianity. He was a Greek who was from Antioch, where Paul and Timothy both lived. Now, this is important. Now, as we studied Psalms and as we get in the Old Testament, and I mentioned, oh, okay, this word we're looking at here in the original language, what language is that going to be in the Old Testament? It's going to be Hebrew. In the New Testament, what's it going to be? It's going to be, it's going to be Greek. The Old Testament was primarily written in Hebrew. There are some texts that have it in some parts of it in Aramaic, okay? But we're not going to get into all that right now. But the Old Testament, when we say in the original, most of the time it's going to be Hebrew. In the New Testament, the entire New Testament is written in the Greek language. And so 28% of it is written by a Greek, a guy who is very educated, a man who understands the language, and God let him tell the story of the Acts of the Apostles. I think that's fabulous. It doesn't tell us anywhere in the Bible that Luke was one of Paul or Timothy's converts, though, so we're not really sure when he came to Christ. But we know that he was not among the disciples who walked with Jesus, and he was not one of the apostles either. This might give you some hope, you know. I mean, you kind of think, you know, a guy writes 28% of the New Testament, he probably met Jesus. He never did. He never knew Christ in that way. And he says it. We'll get into that in a second. Luke had been by trade a physician and by all accounts a very educated and thorough man who paid attention to detail. His work is... Uh, amazing. It's an amazing piece of literature. Any uh, scholars or uh, people that study antiquity, when they read Luke, they go, wow, this guy really knew what he was doing. He had great attention to detail. He mentions geography and he stamps things by time in a way that makes his work very historical and very uh, easy to follow. 
He did the same in the gospel that he wrote about Jesus and his life. Acts is the second, and some say even the second and third in a series of books written by Luke. Acts uh, could be broken down into two separate books. That's why I say second and third, but we don't have it broke down that way. But it was, there's a point in the book of Acts that actually comes to a conclusion and then starts over on a second part of it. And so the first in the series would be the Gospel of Luke itself. Luke seems to have been, not seems to have been, it was, according to the scripture, written for a very important Greek man whose name was Theophilus. Everybody say Theophilus. And I say important, not because he's important to Christianity. We really don't know anything about him. Uh, but he was important. He was a governmental official. Okay. It seems probable that he was a disciple of Luke in Christianity, that maybe uh, Luke was his, you know, who had converted him or at the very least discipled him in Christ. And that Luke first wrote the gospel of Luke for him to help him understand what he had been teaching him. So imagine, you know, uh, the other day Billy was asking me, he's like, uh, Pastor Mark, I love you. I think you're great. But who's going to be like taking your place one day? Like, God forbid, should like anything happen to you? And somewhere along the line, you know, I spent a lot of years talking to somebody. They want to make sure that they remember the things I said. And so this is what, this is what Luke did with the life of Jesus. He'd been teaching Theophilus about Jesus. And he's, as he's getting older... And he's living in his life. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write this down and I'm going to make sure everything I told you is very clear. I'm going to write it down. That is what the gospel of Luke is. It is a, a history being put together for his disciple. It's a labor, a labor of love. He wanted his student to see firsthand the foundation stones too of the church, some of which had begun and to be established and set in place before either of them had actually even been converted to Christ yet. So we're going to take a look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. That way you can see where I have come up with my conclusions about Theophilus and see what you think. Luke chapter 1, uh, beginning the story of the life of Jesus. I'm just going to read the first four verses. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. That's verse 1. Of Luke chapter 1, okay? It shows us that several people tried to write the story of the life of Jesus and that Luke was a Christian when he wrote the Gospel of Luke. So we know those two things. Verse 2, even as they, everybody say they, you're going to notice that the pronouns in the Bible, especially by Luke, are very particular, even as they delivered them to us. So he puts himself outside, Joy. He doesn't say, even as we saw, we saw the things of Jesus. He said, even as they delivered them to us. So he let it be known that Luke, the guy who wrote the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ, never met Jesus. That he writes it based on witness testimony. And that Luke was a Christian here. Okay, it says, and they delivered them unto us which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of God. See how he places them. They were eyewitness. They delivered it to us. Who what? We're not. 
It lets us know Luke was not among the first disciples in the company of Jesus. They delivered the stories to us, Luke and Theophilus. They were eyewitnesses, the apostles. Luke and Acts are both written methodically and historically from eyewitness testimony inspired and recorded by Luke through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Imagine that. A Holy Spirit filled, guided historian and reporter. Two things today, they're, they're, they don't exist, right? Hardly ever anywhere. So what was he doing? He was reporting. He was giving testimony about what people said. You know, getting testimony from what people said and making a story is actually hard work, and but it's very interesting work. I've been doing it as I've been working on a biography, and you get several sources, and they're telling you, and the story gets gets more dimensional. It becomes more beautiful. It's a, it is a, a work of God to be able to take testimony and make a story from it. Verse 3, it seemed good unto me, having had perfect understanding from all things from the very first, to write unto the most excellent Theophilus. Okay? Luke is speaking to Theophilus as a teacher who had learned and taught him what he knew about the life of Jesus. He wanted to write it down so a student would not forget. And some say Luke was hired to write the history for this important guy, Theophilus, but I, I don't buy it. The Bible never says that anywhere. It sounds to me like it is what it says. I told you this, and I want to make sure you know it and that you don't forget it and that you have it right in your hand. Does that sound like he was hired to do it or sound like he loves this man and he wants him to have the information and he wants him to have the story right? It's a work of love here. Writing books about what God has done in your life for the lives of those who tell about God's goodness is a worthwhile pursuit. I pray God gives us many writers here at Foundation Church and that we are a foundation head to publish and promote these works. I love hearing, you know, Christina, thank you for reading it for us. But how did, when you heard the story of Laura Carson, did it make you just go, uh, God's not very good? <laughs> what did it do? Does it made you want to be a better Christian? It inspired you? And did you at any point recognize in her that something in yourself? You see this love, this desire to do what's right, to do good. Now, when you read Laura Carson, you, you don't identify, right? Like, yeah, she leaves everything. She's a single girl. She goes alone to Burma in 1883 and learns the language and ministers of the people. Like, who can relate to that? Who, who's got that kind of bravery among them? But I'm saying when you heard her life, I'm sure there's a story in Laura's life where uh, there's a British woman that has cholera. Remember that? She has cholera and she's dying and she calls for Laura to come to her. And you know what Laura knows, Jackie? If I go to her and comfort her, I'm probably going to die too. And you know, and, and she's about to get married and she has her, she was trying on her wedding dress and the girl, she's like, she's going to die any minute. You got to come, right? Remember this? This is like, this. she goes to the girl and the girl, as soon as she sees Laura, she throws up on Laura on her wedding dress. And Laura goes, yeah, I'm going to die too. Like she, she, she knows it. She's got cholera now in her mind and her, her dress is ruined. But what does she do? She comforts the girl and the girl dies. Now, maybe you can listen to the audiobook and know what happens. Laura doesn't die then. But there's that beauty that she resigned herself. That girl needs me. And I'm going to go to her 
and I'm the only one she's calling for and she's dying. So what if I got my wedding dress on? So what? You see, a life of Christ is a life of abandon that says, Lord, I'm yours. My wedding dress is yours. My wedding day is yours. Testimony. Those stories touch us. Would be to God we find them and we retell them for the beauty that they deliver and the, 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 the dimension they add into what God can do in a man and a woman. Amen. The words used here when he addresses him as most excellent Theophilus, uh, the Greek word is, uh, and I don't know the proper pronunciation. I looked it up. It's kind of hard for me, but it's called kratist. Most excellent, kratist. It signifies a prefix for a person who is important. In, in Luke's writing in the Gospel of Luke, he uses this prefix, uh, most excellent before two other men. One of them is named uh, Agrippa. You guys know who King Agrippa was? Do you know he's another name for King Herod? And there's another guy whose name is Felix, and his name is actually Antonius Felix, and he was the procurator or the governor of Judea and Samaria during the time of Paul. And so this, this most excellent Theophilus, and this is an amazing thing too. God takes this man who's very important and he brings him to Christ. And yet in the body of Christ, Theophilus is the student. This most excellent, this revered, this important man is really the student of Luke. Isn't that kind of a beautiful picture, a turning. You see, the kingdom of God uh, does not set up a hierarchy the way that man does. The Bible says, he that is greatest in the kingdom is least. He that is first shall be what? Last. <coughs> this is what gives away the idea that Theophilus was a ruler of some kind of the empire. His name in Greek, though, means this, and I like this. We don't have any kids named this, but if there are children born, if I don't know how many uh, little Russells we're going to have one day, but this would be a good consideration, Russells. Do you know what Theophilus means? It means lover of God. And people love the name of that so much. They're like, you know what? I don't really believe Theophilus was real. I think it's just for People that love God, you know, well, it's not really likely based on all that Luke says about him and all of that. But, but I kind of like the name that much. Theophilus, lover of God. First lady to get pregnant after this, uh, you know, whatever you, you win, you can name him and no one else can beat you. It's going to be amazing. The Russells are going to beat us. This, this is going to be a boy. They're going to name it Theophilus, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> we'll see. So he says in verse four, he wrote it for this reason, that thou might know the certainty of the things wherein thou hast been instructed. Writing out the details that he had told him already would allow him to verify them himself, enable him to pass on the accurately. You know, the, the Bereans that Paul teaches later, as we find in the book of Acts, he said, these were more excellent than other people. He said, why? Because what they heard me say, they went to the Bible and found out if it was really right there in it. And so what he did is he didn't just tell his story. He told his story. He wrote it down. You want to know where I was? You want to know who I witnessed? You want to know who I talked to? You want to know their name? You want to know where they lived? I'm going to write it all down. You're going to have it and you can verify it for yourself. 
I believe God still uses us perfectly sometimes. That's a thought. So let's jump into Acts 1-1. As you can see, you're like, oh my goodness, it's already, you know, 12 o'clock and he hasn't even gotten to, uh, <laughs> he hasn't even got, but we're going to go through a, one and two. Can we do it? Can you hang with me for just a few minutes? So as we go to Acts 1-1, we're going to see some of these perfect words, perfectly recorded testimonies of the events at the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God come to earth, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 begins the former treaty. You see how that points back to the first treaty? The former treaty have I made unto thee, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The opening words connect the gospel of Luke with the book of Acts, clearly describing his part. One being the story of the life of Jesus, his actions and his teachings. The next verse gives us a time stamp that coincides with the book of Luke's ending and the beginning of the book of Acts. Verse 2, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, Luke not only time stamps the end of his first work he uh, wrote, he characterizes it in this important way. It is the story of the life of Jesus until he was taken up after, everybody say after, he had through the Spirit given commandments, everybody say commandments. Now, the, you, you can read the Word of God and if you don't look at it word for word and you don't, you don't pour over it, you miss stuff, okay? And people will miss this. And so we ain't going to miss it today. He, through the Spirit, had given them commandments, things they must do. And I'm going to call the commandments of Christ foundation stones, right? We got the Ten Commandments, but we got the commandments of Christ. And if Christ had a commandment and he said, do this, is this something you want to stand on? Yeah. So we know the Ten Commandments, right? But after Jesus showed himself alive, let's look and see what Jesus' commandments were. The command is a foundation stone of the church. That is my thesis here. A founding truth defining command that we cannot do without one that when we stand on it and when we do it, it helps us build straight and tall walls. And when we don't, we go off crooked leaning like the Tower of Pisa. So let me, let's read how the book of Luke ends. We're going to get through just, I'm not going to keep you here forever, but we got to end. We got to, we got to cover at least a couple stones here. Can we do it? Luke 24. Here's how the book ends. He, he mentions it in the book of Acts that this is what was going on. He gave these commands. What commands? What were the commands of Jesus? And if they were his commands, we should know what they are and we should do what? We should do them, right? Luke 24, 44. Jesus said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So no commands here. What's he doing? He's just helping them understand. I, I lived. I died. I was buried. I rose from the dead. That's what the Bible said was going to happen to me. And it did. And he said unto them, thus it is written. Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. 
Okay, now, verse 47, we get into a command. Don't miss it. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So stone number one, command number one here in Luke chapter 24. Those who were there should leave where they were and they should go out and preach the message of repentance and remission of sins in the name of Jesus. They were to do it among all nations and they were to begin right where they were standing in Jerusalem. This is a very specific command, is it not? This was their very first marching order, the first command, their first foundation stone of the church. This is and should be first in what we do as a result of what Christ has done. Matthew and Mark both recorded the giving of the commandments too. According to Matthew, Jesus said this, Matthew 28, Jesus, verse 18, came and spake unto them saying, all power, so now we have even more information than Luke records, all power is given to me in heaven and earth, right? Through my death, burial and resurrection, I conquered the powers that be, Satan and all of his minions, all the fallen angels that despotically ruled the earth, and therefore, because I conquered them, you should, what? Go into all the world, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So the same command we see in Luke 24, in a little more detail we see in Matthew's account, it leaves out the second command though, and we'll get to that in a second. Let's look at how Mark recorded the same event and see if he clearly saw the command as Luke and Matthew did. Here's what Mark records in Mark chapter 16 and verse 14. Afterward, after Jesus had risen from the dead, this is Mark 16, 14, he appeared unto the 11 as they sat at meat and he upbraided them for their unbelief in the hardness of heart. So he's not commanding them. He's just straightening them out. You people have not believed. You didn't believe what I told you. I told you I was going to die, but you didn't believe it. I told you I was going to rise from the dead, but you didn't believe it. Straighten up and start believing me, right? Because they believed not, which they had seen him after. They didn't believe it until they saw him after he rose from the dead. They're like, oh, now we believe. And then he reminds him, you need to believe whether you see or not. But then verse 15, he said unto them, so here we have the command again, go, everybody say go. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is the first foundation stone that Jesus Christ laid. This is what our church should be about. It's what we should be thinking about. It's what we should be doing. It's what we should build on. A church that is not built on reaching the lost and preaching the gospel is built on a stone that isn't going to be building anything. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick. They shall recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and he sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now, Matthew and Mark missed something important. And you might go, it's, it, I'm not trying to say they got it wrong. They just didn't share it all. Luke did though. So we get even more detail here, but we only have one command in Matthew. We only have one command 
in Mark. We don't have it in John. John doesn't record the, what we call the great commissioning or the giving of this command. Luke is the only one that records the second command, and you're going to see why it is so pertinent to Luke's gospel and the connection to the opening scene of the book of Acts. Okay, but for now, can we all agree the first foundation stone, the first command in the new kingdom era was to go preach, teach, baptize and make converts and make disciples. And to not do this under your own power. Right. All powers given unto me. Therefore, go and do this. How? In my name, under my power, go preach, teach, baptize, and disciple in my name. This is the very first thing that we're supposed to do, right? It is the first stone of by God's grace. May it ever be the foundation of this church in our lives. This is what we were saved for first. Yeah, we were saved from our sins, for, uh, but the work of bringing salvation to the world, we were saved for that. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Can I get an amen? Great, let's move on to the second commandment, which is the second foundation stone of the church. Back to the end of Luke's gospel. He said unto them, thus it is written, thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. Here we go, verse 47. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, right? So as we move through Acts, you'll see how this preaching in the name of Jesus happens throughout the book, right? It was the blueprint for the building of the church. Here we go, verse 48. And you are witnesses. Everybody say witnesses. See, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at a witness, firsthand account. Now, here's the second command, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Here's the command. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem and stay there until you are endued with power from on high. Here, the second command of Luke refers to in Acts 1-2, and you will see later, Luke makes clear that this was the command of Jesus the command was to wait and tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued. Everybody say endued. Endued uh, in the Greek. You ready? We're going to be doing more of this. In the, in the Greek, endued means to be clothed. It means to put it on. Like, like if you remember Elijah, right? He had that mantle. And, 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 and when Elisha picked it up, what did he do? He put it on. He put that mantle on and he walked in the power of Elijah's mantle. And God gave him a double portion of that spirit. He clothed, he put it on. You liking this, Rebecca? He said, you go to Jerusalem and you wait. Everybody say, wait. So he told him to go, but before you go, wait. And I kind of like this one. The first stone is that you go. The second stone is do not go until you wait and God fills you and clothes you and gifts you with the power to do what I've called you to do. Are you guys, I'm about to get cranked up. First stone, go do this. Second stone, don't do this on your own. There was a man who came and he watched the apostles. You'll see this in the book of Acts. Oh, check it out. They say in the name of Jesus and demons uh, are jumping out. Let's just go do that. And so he goes and he lays hands on it. Oh, yeah. And the demon says right back at him. He said, yeah, Paul, I know. And Jesus, I know. But who are you? And he beats and whoops and hurts the man and humiliates the man. Why? You cannot do it without the spirit of God. This is not something you just learn how to do. The command was to wait and tarry into Jerusalem until they were endued. 
not to be sacrilegious. And I'm smiling because I'm already doubting myself right now. Not to be sacrilegious, but don't go anywhere until you get your superhero cape on. What you're being called to do, you cannot do without the power that will be given to you on this day. You have not been given it yet. Go to Jerusalem and wait until you get it. And after that, the first thing I told you to do, then do that. So foundation stone number two is you cannot do the first command until you have obeyed the second. I think this is fabulous. You cannot go out into the world and make disciples under your own power. You can only do it in my name and through my power. Go to Jerusalem and wait on God to give you the power. Does that sound pretty important to you? It does to me. You see the, the, the second foundation stone of the church is we don't have the power to do it. We must do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. Any uh, fault that we can do it in our own effort will fail. It will tip over. It will fall apart. It will not last. It will be burnt up. You cannot build the kingdom on a method, a doctrine, a tradition, a set of man-made ideas. You cannot level it. You cannot set it right. You cannot set it firmly without me. As Jesus said, you can do nothing. You can have no confidence in your flesh, our history, our family, our denominational, or even our non-denominational background. We must be filled with the power of God to do all and to build all that we must build. No foundation can be laid than that which Jesus Christ is laying. And here we have a foundation stone one and two. Are you ready to build? It is not enough that he has the power. You need the power. He has ascended to the Father, and you are going to do the work. And he will do greater things than he did. No foundation can any man lay. It's not enough that he has the power we needed. It is not enough that he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. You and I, through the power of the Spirit, were made and saved to conquer the world and bring in a kingdom that will have no end. Can I get an amen? An amen. Can I get three amens? I want three of them. So we're only in verse two. Guys, is this going to be an exciting journey? Yeah, I can't wait. I'm so excited. I'm so jazzed. I even had, they even had slides ready for me, but they don't come to like verse eight. I got slides that we could show. They're, oh, they're exciting. They're in color. They're beautiful. It's going to be a little PowerPoint. I'm going to show you things. Until next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to build a right. We want to build on the foundation stones that you have set for us. Lord, you said that the church was built. The church that the gates of hell could not prevail against. We were built on the rock that you are the son of God, that you are that cornerstone for us. But then you said it was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ, you yourself, cornerstone of that building and that we as your people are lively stones built to a holy habitation for you. Lord, fill us. Use us. And may we take heed how we build. In Christ's name we pray, all God's people said. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us.